One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On this episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the report from the Equalities and Human Rights Commission on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And then Emily Tamkin from our World Review podcast joins us to discuss the US election. The Equality and Human Rights Commission has found Labour responsible for breaking the Equality Act. So that's through political interference in decisions over anti-Semitism complaints, inadequate training for those who are handling those complaints and also harassment. And following this news, Jeremy Corbyn himself has actually been suspended from the party because of words that he used in his reaction to the report where he said that the scale of anti-Semitism had actually been dramatically overstated by opponents of the Labour Party for political reasons. Stephen, you've had to write and rewrite your responses to this story over the course of the day. What's standing out for you in the events of today? One of the things I have been and it's you know it's a it's a very sort of lengthy report, but it is of course solely about how labor as an institution operates. None of the stuff which I would actually say was probably like the most important in terms of the political and emotional stuff, so uh, the support for the mural, the i h r a row, the black september yeah the 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 wreath and all that kind of, yeah the, one of the things I found a bit frustrating about some of the reporting both th- today and like in the the run up to it coming out is that in terms of the stuff which we have like spent airtime on on this podcast or we've written about on the website, actually a very small minority of that is, is what was, was ever in the scope of this. One of the sort of demands of a lot of communal organisations was to have an independent body. And this was like a demand of a lot of Labour MPs, a lot of people around the Labour Party. And it's one of the things that the EHRC, which obviously does have statutory powers to tell associations if I say well you actually have to do that is one of the things that is going to happen but I thought at the time and even more so now that the problem with this as an aim can be seen in the Q&A Keir Starmer faced where like every question is are you going to kick out Jeremy Corbyn and indeed lots of the reporting has made it seem like the reason why Corbyn's been kicked out is because of the report when it's not it's because he the specific language he used was the thing that uh, had specifically been said people shouldn't do in the report and Keir Starmer himself had said now although obviously that Labour's thing is like you know HQ did it right like ultimately like real talk it's not like the general secretary of the Labour Party is like hey I thought I'd do this on my own yeah the leader's office would have known this was going to happen but it kind of underlines the sort of central impossibility of what has been asked for which is that on the one hand an independent body of complaints which is great from a process perspective on the other hand for the leadership to be responsible for it and those two things 
can't really be reconciled. And I think that the kind of hangover from the, the last five years and this kind of the reason why people asked for an independent body to look into complaints is because it was a way of swerving the difficult question about like, what do you do about the fact that many of the central complaints people had were about him and about things he had said and things he had done. Now, those are also failures of the leadership that go well beyond him, right? Like, in terms of the things that Jeremy Corbyn did that caused pain and distress for the Jewish community and political difficulties for Labour, political difficulties for people in the PLP who felt they couldn't remain in the PLP, you know, whether they stood down, joined another party, were part of that, like, letter going, however you vote, don't Labour. Like, those issues were pretty much all things that happened under... Blair, Brown, and Ed Miliband. And yeah, you're widening it beyond Jeremy Corbyn, right? Like Ken Livingston, who is specifically named in the report, right? When he compared that evening standard journalist to a, a Nazi concentration camp guard, and when they went, look, I'm Jewish, could you not do that? When he like then doubled down on it, that happened under Tony Blair. And then he was able to stand again as the Labour candidate in 2008 under Gordon Brown. I, you know, I'm not remote. Yeah, I don't resile from like any of the things I have written or said about Corbyn's specific culpability and the specific things Corbyn said and did that deepened the problem. But I guess my kind of like immediate, and I know I'm doing a very like mean girls word vomit here, but my immediate reaction is among the like endless list of things I found painful about this period. One of the things I found frustrating was this kind of like this narrative of we never had a problem in the Labour Party until this guy who I guess he became an MP by magic in the autumn of 2015 and got 35 nominations by magic in 2015 became leader, which is not true. This was the culmination of a toleration of language, of behaviour, of of a whole bunch of things that became acute under, and I think partly because of Corbyn, but it was a culmination. It was not a new phenomenon. And I think the report itself is very good. But my concern about a lot of the mainstream reporting, I do think actually one of the unalloyed and sort of positives, I don't think very many people will have noticed. But this is basically the first press conference on this issue in which the Jewish News got a question, the Jewish Telegraph got a question, and the Jewish Chronicle got a question, a step that did not happen before. And that is hugely positive. But I am slightly concerned, I think, then like a lot of the mainstream response, you can kind of tell just wants to be like, and now that bad Jeremy Corbyn is over and we can stop having to listen to the complaining and whining and convetching of the Jews. I don't know why I mispronounced fetching there, but I did. Okay. And Alva, what did you make of Keir Starmer's response to the report? So I suppose I very, very slightly diverge from Stephen over the like the exact terms of, of how Corbyn was suspended. Because, I mean, I suppose on a kind of common sense level, like, yeah, obviously, the general secretary who made the decision to suspend Corbyn in the light of his reaction to the HRC report, the general secretary probably did that knowing that he would have the full support of Keir Starmer, and that that is the political direction of Labour under Keir Starmer. And we know that Keir Starmer, definitely like his spokespeople say that he very much agrees with the decision that has been taken. But I suppose in terms of like the the technical stuff it is actually right and important that we don't fudge the line and make it sound like Keir Starmer suspended him because I suppose the whole point or part of the point of this whole report is that the leadership can't intercept one way or another with these kinds of decisions that Labour has a line on on these things 
that it won't, I suppose, be affected by the color of the precise leadership, but that actually it's it's a bit more of a formal structural thing, even though like the end result is exactly the same. But I think that there is an important reason why they're being really pernickety about that. But yeah, in terms of Keir Starmer's response, like you and Stephen were both sort of alluding to, the day has been has been really strange because it looked as though this big moment for the Labour Party and, and for Jewish members of the Labour Party, people who left the Labour Party, that this big moment was just going to be dwarfed by millions of journalists asking the same question over and over again about what should happen to Jeremy Corbyn, whether it was all Jeremy Corbyn's fault. And there was a a proper reason for that it was you know the wording of his own response that he issued and he presided over a lot of the time and a lot of the incidents that the report was focused on but it did just seem like the moment that lots of people were hoping for where a moment to take a pause and really think about the Labour Party's record on this and its attitude towards Jewish people in the round and how their experiences have been over the past few years it did look like that would be dwarfed by people basically like calling for Jeremy Corbyn's head and possibly you know like from the perspective of of the relevant journalists you know not necessarily in the best of faith but more just sort of wanting a good story and because it's a sort of like the bang for for blood that journalists do where they kind of they want to see specific people take the blame for things or or they want to move the story forward and then of course after that press conference where Keir Starmer was quite clear that he hadn't seen Jeremy Corbyn's statement and he'd need to look at it then the Labour Party said like confirmed that he had been suspended and the whip had been withdrawn so in a way Keir Starmer's own response was exactly as you would expect it just in the you know that he apologized to the Jewish community and that and that he fully accepted the findings of the report Beyond the the headline of Jeremy Corbyn being suspended, I think there are kind of two things that I would point to as the most interesting things today. The first thing would be Margaret Hodge this morning. Before Jeremy Corbyn's suspension, the Jewish labour movement did a press conference, including Ruth Smith and Margaret Hodge. And people were again asking Margaret Hodge, they read out Jeremy Corbyn's statement to her and asked what she thought about his comments and whether he should be suspended. She gave an answer a few times. You could you could literally see all the journalists like rushing to write down the same kind of punchier quotes whenever she said something that looked like she wanted him gone. And I think you could detect that she was getting more and more frustrated as the press conference went on. And eventually she said, look, this has been a really difficult time. And we're all feeling very emotional today. I don't want Jeremy Corbyn to be the story today. Jeremy Corbyn is history. She was basically saying that she wanted this to be a moment to, a bit like Stephen was saying, to reflect on anti-Semitism within Labour much more broadly and to begin a more serious time of sort of reflection and healing. She was like, I think, quite palpably frustrated by the framing of it. And then like... A matter of minutes after that came the news that Jeremy Corbyn had been suspended. I mean, I would imagine that she agrees with that decision. But I just think that in terms of the ultimate thing that people like Margaret Hodge want, which is like for this to be a learning experience, I didn't think that that moment sort of marks 
the beginning of healing or of a of a learning process and then the second once the first one margaret hodge the second one i i think today is actually a statement from nadia whittam the baby of the house the new labor mp from the left of the party in the socialist campaign group who um was a pps the lowest rung of seniority in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet. And she resigned over one of the positions that the Labour leadership was taking over one of those bills that we talked about on the podcast before over sort of human rights. So she's been quite quite interesting all along as a young Corbynite who was initially happy to work from the leadership and then eventually had to resign. But she put out this statement today after Jeremy Corbyn was suspended, which was just like, I just think a model of socialism without anti-Semitism, where she just said that she completely accepted the findings of the report and gave a statement to the Jewish people of her community. And you can see in the replies that people from her side of the party don't all agree with that. But I think it shows that in terms of the reaction to Corbyn's suspension, there are plenty of people from the left of the Labour Party who aren't going to be resigning over this and who aren't going to be siding with Corbyn. There are others who I think just like haven't decided what they're going to do yet. I mean, in a way, Nadia Whittam's response is exactly what Margaret Hodge was hoping for today. Uh, yeah, I think in general, actually, the, the interesting thing about the suspension is the relatively small eruption it caused, which was definitely a lot smaller than you know, when it happened and I filed on it. I was just like, oh, right, so this is going to be a much bigger deal than it currently seems to have been in terms of how, although obviously that is partly because some people are considering their responses. Because yeah, I think the other thing I, I realised is, is striking about the report in terms of the argument that is made about like, oh, yeah, there was interference. Yeah, the kind of shifting of right at the beginning of this, there was no problem. Then in the middle, there was a problem, but it was a problem caused solely by factionalism. Then there was no interference. Then there was only interference because of the factionalism. The crucial thing about some of the interference is we now know there was interference to kind of nip a complaint about Jeremy Corbyn and the mural in the bud, which I'm sorry, it is impossible to reconcile that with this argument that the inquiry, that the interference was solely about expediting the difficulties inside the party. And I've said and written that I think there were difficulties uh, that were solely about factionism, but there were also just difficulties of, of, toler- of at best, just toleration of anti-Semitism. If you've been directly affected by this, as Margaret Hodge, of course, has, right, you do know that, like, this, it's not like a story of, like, everything was fine in the Labour Party and then a bad man became a leader. The hopeful thing about Nadia Watomi's statement, as you say, is that it like was something which can hopefully be the beginning of a more healthy attitude to the whole problem in the Labour Party. Yeah, the big question is, it feels to me unlikely that any of this stuff will will not trigger a serious and deep conflict because once they do have that in ter- that independent process in place, and I guess this is where. I guess my feeling is while I think that that statement from a political perspective, you know, seeing as they do have this like broad clause of bringing the party into disrepute, I here's a button the leader can press to make a problem go away. I, I think, you know, Corbyn's statement, I think is an open and shut example of bringing the party into disrepute because it creates a problem the party doesn't want to have. And that is what that clause is for. But I personally would much rather, and obviously, you know, like, deeply divisive in the community and people listening to this uh, I was about to say feel free to give me a hard time about it on Friday night tomorrow but I'm actually not going to one I'm 
staying at home for obvious reasons. But, you know, like, would feel, yeah, like, you know, like, I was about to say feel free as if, like, my friends and relations don't have wherewithal to message me and telling me when I'm being a bad Jew. But um, I personally, what I would like is, although I think it is an open and shut example, I would significantly prefer it if all of these people were kicked out by the independent process. That to me is the like ideal situation, which I am kind of frustrated that because of today's statement, that moment, yeah, even if it does kind of happen, right, it will never sort of like, won't be like as pure. Yeah, no, I do. I do agree with that. I do feel uncomfortable about the idea that this is being covered yet again as a sort of factional labour war rather than for what the report has actually found, which is, like you say, something that has been a long running problem with the Labour Party and has sort of been given the oxygen to become sort of mainstream in recent years. I've never felt more uncomfortable as a journalist than some of the, the events that I've covered over the past few years to do with this issue. I couldn't believe that I was interviewing people protesting outside Parliament against anti-Semitism, you know, who were just absolutely, this was after the big to and fro over the comment, the Facebook comment on the mural, I think it was in 2018. People were just absolutely devastated about what was happening in the Labour Party, or at least the prejudices that they knew existed in some corners of the left sort of bubbling up and being defended by people in power. The same goes for the anti-Semitism inquiry, the, the, the Shami Chakrabarti one in 2016, when Ruth Smith was was reduced to tears in, in the audience. It was a really tense and hostile atmosphere there. And I, you know, you sort of sometimes as a journalist, you find yourself kind of having an out-of-body experience where you look at what you're covering and you just think, you know, how appalling. And obviously that kind of thing can happen for all sorts of political ruptures. And you think, wow, what a moment of history I'm covering. But with events like that, you know, you're covering something that is deep and beyond party politics and is incredibly dark and worrying. And, and as you say, it's not the kind of sentiment that will go when one man goes. So I do worry about the overshadowing of the actual issues by opening up another wound in in Labour's sort of civil war, yeah. I wonder what you th- what you two think will will happen. So the CST has found since like they started collecting records on anti-Semitic incidents in the UK that after a trigger event, so like in terms of the like violent threat to you know to synagogues and and our communal centres, right? Like is is you know from jihadism from the far right, right? But then after a trigger event, it takes about two years for like the thing that's being triggered by the trigger event to like revert back. Mm-hmm. Really, there, it turns out there is nothing I can't like turn into a like, well, wonkishly, I've read the report and <laughs> an, I don't know why I decided to do an adenoidal impression of my adenoidal voice. Um, <laughs> double adenoids. But like, um, like, yeah. impression of Stephen, <laughs> yeah. a rare treat. But yeah, so statistically, right, like we, we know that, yeah, like at least two years. And yeah, you can see this through the state of hate, right? It has has changed the pattern of, of who does anti-Semitic hatred in the UK. You know, step forward for gender equality. It used to be about 10%. Now it's 15%. You know, like, yeah, like, so yeah, morbidly, it's fascinating, right? Because one of the really interesting things about Corbynism as a phenomenon is how well the Labour Party has done electorally under Corbyn among women. And then it has made the Labour Party membership, well, not quite representative, because there are more women in the population. It's only 50-50 in the Labour Party. And it has right at the margin. Yeah, again, not by very much. Like the overwhelming proportion of anti-Semitic hate is still done by men, but it's done that too. I think then like the consequences will be with us for a very long time. I think 
there's obviously there's the open question of, of who ultimately wins Labour's internal battles. But I also think, right, there's like... I was listening back because someone sent me the podcast we did, you know, you know, way, way back in the past with me, Henry Zeffman and Helen. And which I was talking about, like, during the 2015 election, you know, talking to this affluent guy from, from the Indian subcontinent, he said he wasn't going to vote Tory because of rivers of blood. And statistically, that guy probably is now voting Tory, right? But, like, that, that's what I mean. Like, it takes a long time. And I think, like, my hope is that Keir genuinely does believe it when he talks about the importance of, um, like, of actually fair processes and his, like, the thing which sometimes makes him a slightly frustrating politician, which is his very CEO-y vibe, may on this specific issue be what Labour needs. It will, I think, largely fall off the most of the media landscape because actually, for the same, like, yeah, the same challenge that like we always had, friends and relatives would be like, "Why aren't you writing about this more?" And it's just like, "Well, I- I've said it's bad. I can't write that again. Mm-hmm. There's not much more to add on that thing other than like it's bad. It still needs to be fixed." And I think it's just exposed a broader problem with political journalism, right? Like, we're very bad at covering things that like aren't news but are important. In terms of the media stuff, outside community papers and, and specialist outlets like ourselves and, and Labour List, it will it will recede quite a bit because it will mostly not be about conflict other than in like the sort of stuff that's more like abstruse, like the NEC, mm-hmm. the conference floor. But the consequences of those trigger events, yeah, like, yeah, statistically, it's pretty clear, right? There will be people for at least the next two years who, you know, like, they have to clean, like, graffiti off their shop or they're shouted at in the street or they're sent across social media, or in some cases things are significantly worse, although it's, yeah, worth noting that the pattern of violence and it just does, does skew the, the other way. That will be with us for a long time, and the political anxieties within the community will be with us for a, a long time. The lesson, you know, for the Canadian Conservatives who've successfully fixed their problems with ethnic minority voters, for the Conservatives who've made some steps forward, some steps back. In terms of that, in the electoral issue, that will, you know, like, and the political pain people feel, that is like a, a, a three-decade commitment. So I suppose I've been thinking about whether this will shift the dial on this among people on the left of the Labour Party or people who supported Corbyn. And maybe I'm just reading too much into one tweet from a young Corbynite MP, but I do think that given the politics of a lot of people, especially, I was going to say a lot of people who supported Corbyn, I suppose I don't mean sort of the old left, but a lot of the kind of the younger people who were appealed to by the Corbyn leadership campaign and who've kind of stuck with him and who would be on like towards the left of the Labour Party, kind of people like Ash Sarker, I do wonder if given like the the politics of that kind of person is in most cases very much informed by things like intersectionality. So like the kind of the critical structures and theories of like sort of postmodern scholarship around oppression. All of those people felt during the Corbyn era, not all of them, but I suppose there was this feeling if I cite a sort of a Jewish friend of mine who's a Corbynite supporter works for a left-wing union his feeling was always that there was a problem of anti-semitism within the Labour Party but his frustration was that there was anti-semitism across society 
and he felt like parts of the media kind of reveled in how badly the Labour leadership under Corbyn was handling it, that it wasn't done in good faith in some cases, that it kind of reinforced this feeling that the left and that that part of of the left was toxic and dangerous and, and unfit to be leading a serious political party. And like that's clearly the view Corbyn himself expressed today in different terms. But I just wonder if, even if people still maintain that view, the publication of this report draws a line under this, that you can think that sometimes when people reported on this, they didn't do it in good faith and or that they didn't like Jeremy Corbyn anyway, but that the findings of this report are indisputable. And I think that you do see that from people like Nadia Whittam today, even, you know, the response from from the people who take up a kind of leadership role on the left, people like Ash Sarker, who are kind of not happy that Jeremy Corbyn has been expelled, although in, in Nadia Whittam's case, she didn't even say that, but who kind of accept that it's not really appropriate anymore to just be thinking of this in terms of whether people had another agenda as well when they were reporting on this that this was a a really serious problem and that if, if you sort of see your politics through a sort of apparatus of intersectionality and you your left wing politics is infused by an understanding of structural racism and so on that you absolutely just have to accept the findings of a report like this and that it is counter to so much of what you're taught through those ideas and structures to just dismiss those kinds of findings and the experiences of Jewish people. And I think that, like you could have said that long before the publication of this report, but I just think that this really does draw a line under it. That's just the impression I'm getting that like everyone seems to know or certainly a lot of the key figures on the left just know how completely unacceptable it would be to dismiss the findings of a report like this. Already we're seeing the divide between the people who are pushing the kind of this was greatly exaggerated versus the people who aren't even going to bother making that case anymore that like the findings of this are indisputable like Nadia Whittam. There's like clearly a, a socialist way of responding to this. I don't think that we saw that so much in the middle of the Corbyn era when people were talking about anti-Semitism and we're seeing more of it now. And like, I don't really disagree that clearly this will expose some major factional issues, especially when more people are investigated by an independent inquiry and like the, you know, potentially more MPs will be suspended from the party. But I just think in terms of the politics of the left in general, even people who don't necessarily support Keir Starmer. I just feel like I'm sensing that a lot of people have got the message today. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
So instead of You Ask Us today, we are joined by Emily Tamkin, our US editor, to discuss what's going on in the US ahead of the election. And she usually co-hosts the World Review podcast, which is all about what's happening internationally. Thanks so much for joining us, Emily, and for answering our questions. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Mine's just a very general question, first of all, which is what's the atmosphere like there? I just imagine it must be incredibly tense, no matter what setting you're in. Yes, it is extremely tense for, I mean, a few reasons. The first is that it would be tense in any year. You know, we have a very polarized political scene here in the US and a hotly contested presidential election and we're we're a few days out. So it would always be tense. Second thing is that coronavirus cases are rising. They are the worst they've been since the summer. Infections are happening in places that they didn't really happen in waves one and two. So there was a poll earlier this week that said that suddenly Biden was way up in the polls in Wisconsin and that the smart money was kind of on the idea that that was because he because people are dying, right? Because they're getting sick and dying and don't know what to do. And there's there's sort of no cavalry coming in to help them to help stop it. And the third reason that it's so tense is that, you know, when we talk about something that we talk about a lot on the World Review podcast is that people are speaking about this as though it's a normal election, right? Where like, oh, Biden's ahead in this state, Trump's ahead in this state. And it's it, it's not because, firstly, because there's a pandemic, so many people are choosing to vote early or vote absentee by mail. And Trump has tried to delegitimize those votes. He has baselessly accused mail-in voting, which he himself has used, of being like overrun with fraud. He is also saying that voting, that we should know who the president is on November 3rd, that is next Tuesday, and that the votes should all be counted by that. Well, the votes are never all counted by November 3rd, right? States come out with their projections on November 3rd, which they may or may not be able to do this time, depending on whether they can start counting the votes early or, you know, how many mail-in ballots come in. But we're not we're not going to know for certain in all likelihood on November 3rd. And to say that we have to declare a winner then, it's it's wrong. Add to this that, that Trump and the Republican-controlled Senate just put a ninth justice on the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett, and Trump and Republican allies in the Senate actually said out loud ahead of this that part of the reason they wanted her on the bench is so that if the election is close and if it goes to the Supreme Court, as it did in 2000 in Bush v. Gore, that there will be a ninth justice to, to decide the election. And people are understandably tense about this because they don't want the Supreme Court to decide who the president is. They don't, they want their votes to decide who gets to be the next president. Emily, I also have a question. I'm going to take full advantage of having my own temporary election guru. (laughs) For people who haven't been reading your coverage of individual swing states, um, if you're listening and you haven't, it is not too late to go and check all of that out on the website and there'll be more. But For people who haven't been following so far, would you be able to give basically a sort of beginner's guide to what to to what to look out for on election night and with results? So the states that you think our listeners should look out for that will be major indicators and kind of maybe roughly what times you expect results to come out and, and, you know, like how listeners should plan their all-nighter or whether mm-hmm. they should just get up early your expertise on all I, of that I, I would just say if you're a listener like if you want to stay up all night we will be doing live tweeting and, and having analysis for you throughout the night but if you are British and would like to go to bed and wake up in the morning and read it that's fine in all in all likelihood we will not know on Wednesday I, I think unless it is a Biden blowout victory on Tuesday night we will not know because if Trump is ahead 
more Democrats were expected to vote by mail. So if Trump is ahead, that doesn't necessarily mean that Biden doesn't have more votes coming in. Whereas if Biden is ahead from in-person voting and more Biden supporters were expected to vote by mail, then it will probably be Biden. But I would say I, I think that we should, you know, election night is such a big thing in America. And, and because America has like this cultural spread around the world, this, but, but that's entertainment, right? The political reality is that we probably won't know on Tuesday night, which is fine. To answer your question, actually, the, the states or regions that I would be watching and indeed will be watching are the Rust Belt and the Sun Belt. So the Rust Belt, it's parts of that, that's Pennsylvania, it's parts of Michigan, Wisconsin. And this is traditionally, or in recent years, you know, sort of modern history, traditionally democratic territory. But Trump won in 2016. The polling was off. People had no idea how well Trump was going to do with rural voters in those states and how much rural enthusiasm there would be. And so the polling missed it. Hillary Clinton famously did not go to Michigan or Wisconsin because they said, oh, our data says that we don't need to. So Biden is currently polling ahead in Wisconsin and Michigan and is very close in Pennsylvania. Just yesterday, the Supreme Court decided that they were not going to rehear a case that would have shortened the deadline for getting ballots in, which is good news, not just for Democrats, but for people who want vote, who want votes to be counted. Pennsylvania is going to be extremely close. You know, the, the line here is like Pennsylvania could be to 2020 what Florida was to 2000. So definitely watch Pennsylvania. And actually, we're very fortunate because City Monitor, our partner publication, uh, has Jay Plumgart, who's in Philadelphia, who will be watching Pennsylvania along with us to give us the the download. The other region that I would watch is the Sun Belt. So that's Texas, Arizona, Georgia, Florida. Texas, Arizona, Georgia, for years now, people have been like, it's going to be blue. Like, this is the year, blue being the, the color of the Democrats. Like, this is the year the Democrats are going to take Texas, take Arizona, take Georgia. This year, they're saying this, this really might be the year. I actually think that Arizona probably will turn blue just based on the amount of both how, you know, popularity of some Democratic candidates, specifically astronaut Mark Kelly and down ticket races or the Senate race in his case, based on, you know, the growing Hispanic population in that state. I will believe that Texas goes for the Democrats when Texas goes for the Democrats, but Biden is currently polling ahead in Texas, which is wild. Georgia, I don't know that it's going to flip in this election. It's a very famous, it's like a, a textbook case of voter suppression by by intent or just ineptitude, right? Like there, if you have to wait on long lines to cast your vote, as Georgia Secretary of State has already said people will have to do in the week heading up to election day, like that's effectively a tax on your right to vote, right? And it coincidentally keeps happening in predominantly African-American and low-income areas. And I also mentioned Florida, which every election, something something happens in Florida. The joke in this in these past four years or one of the jokes has been like, the rest of the world now sees America the way America looks at Florida, kind of. <laughs> so I, I think that Florida will also be very close. I think it's probably going to go for Trump. But interestingly, Biden has been pulling support from seniors for Trump, which makes sense, right? Because this pandemic is so dangerous for the for the elderly. And Trump has just like objectively mishandled it and has lost some support from senior citizens whom he, whose votes he badly needs if he's going to win Florida. So those are the ones that I would watch, but you don't need to stay up all night to do it. Cool. Yeah. So I guess my question is 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 about older voters. The the, the US is a, a young country for an advanced economy, yet the two candidates are a thousand years old. What's up with that? <laughs> I think about this a lot. Well, first of all, although the US is a relatively young country, older voters vote at a far greater rate than younger voters do. 
you would think that like with generations, this might change, but it's, it's older voter turnout of older voters is higher than turnout of younger voters. Although I should say that the most popular candidate with the youth in the primary was Bernie Sanders, who is also just like a very, <laughs> very aged man. What is that about? I think there are actually, you know, there is a future in both parties that's quite young. In the Democratic Party, you have obviously progressive superstar Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her squad. So Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Presley and Rashid Tlaib. And you have, you know, you have other, the the co-chairs, the progressive caucus, uh, Mark Pekan and Pramila Jayapal. They're not old by any stretch of the imagination. And other Republicans, you have Matt Getz, who's tweeted that he'll never love another president again after Donald Trump. He's quite young. So there are young politicians who are popular and have energy and who, who are sort of positioning themselves to be the future of the party, but they're not the ones who can win right now. I think for Trump, his age, it's tied into like how established he was and his celebrity and also his support with older in 2016 with older voters who had felt older white voters who had felt left behind or, or passed over by the political process. And with Biden, I think people wanted, you know, the reason that he is the candidate is that people really wanted a candidate who could win the general election. And that was an old white man. Yeah. So, so Emily, I guess I have one question, which is if I were, I'm not gonna lie, the fact I don't have to cover this election means I'm going to sleep on election night for the first Good. time in half you a should. decade. But, um, yes, rest up. Like, but if, if I were not doing this, is there somewhere you could recommend for me to follow the election, perhaps in an auditory form as well, an email form as well? Yeah. Yes, of course. Well, there are three answers to your question. The first is that on election night itself, I will be, along with some colleagues, live tweeting the US election bonanza at the New Statesman Twitter account. And then on New Statesman, on our US hub, we will have commentary and analysis throughout the night. As you're so, so graciously said, I'm the co-host of the World Review podcast, along with Jeremy Cliff which is the international ripoff of, of this podcast. And we are actually tomorrow have a podcast going up with Sir Kim Derrick is our guest. So that will be an interesting Ooh, discussion. Yes, it should be, should be a time uh, getting his impressions of the, the Trump years and the selection. And then we also have a news, the, the World Review newsletter, which is kind of the newsletter component of the podcast. And we'll obviously be covering the US election in that this week. A little birdie also told me, Emily, that you'll be making a guest appearance on Morning Call, our beloved um, daily political briefing, the day before and after the election. Is that correct? I believe that's correct. But if the if the birdie himself wants to confirm. Uh... <laughs> yes, Emily will be appearing on Morning Call because I have yeah, I've properly decided to rinse the fact that I don't have to stay up for this election, don't have to wake up for this election. I mean, really, I'm stealing a living next week, but, but, it, but yeah, but it, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it'll be great. So listeners can look forward to the American takeover of Morning Call, which is exactly why you signed up for a New Statesman newsletter as well. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikhelian, and my colleagues, political editor Stephen Bush, political correspondent Alva Ray, and US editor Emily Tamkin. Thanks so much for listening. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.